Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Dr. Katie M. Heffelfinger, Lecturer in Biblical Studies and Hermeneutics at the Church of Ireland Theological Institute, and is entitled Truth and Hidden Things, Reading Isaiah 45, 9-25 as Scripture. So thank you very much to the organizers. It is really a privilege and a pleasure um, to be here with you today. Um, the handout has the NRSV uh, and the Hebrew thank you to Richard um, for, for producing the handout. Um, I, I will be at times, uh, I suppose, um, picking up on and, and discussing the NRSV's translation as I go. The truth, quipped Oscar Wilde, quote, is rarely pure and never simple, end quote. With characteristic irony, this simple statement appears to convey a certain amount of truth. However, there are voices who would call for religious faith to offer clear guidance to believers and proclaim the truth clearly and simply. Words such as the NRSV's, I, the Lord, speak the truth, I declare what is right, Isaiah 45, 19, appear to lay claim to the nature of truth and of divine speech. But this passage presents divine speech poetically, a form that conveys truth in a way that problematizes our affection for simplicity. Biblical poetry invokes and glories in complexity. It renders truth rich and full by embracing the ambiguity inherent in human experience, by intensifying our encounter with the emotional element of our grasping truth, and by holding competing truths in juxtaposed and realistic tension. In short, biblical poetry offers to our contemporary faith contexts an urgently needed counterbalance to our tendency to valorize that which is simple, clear, direct, and paraphrasable by insisting that relationship with God invites us into a realm in which mystery, paradox, emotion, and imagination are profoundly relevant. What I am suggesting is that biblical Hebrew poetry can contribute significantly to faith communities in our current cultural context. I am not arguing that such encounters should be primarily explanatory or informational. Rather, engagement with biblical Hebrew poems should start from the attitudes and postures they invite through their own particular form. Individual poems will demand distinctive postures, but I would like to propose some attitudes 
that are both generally appropriate to biblical Hebrew poetry and particularly appropriate to the text I intend to examine more closely. The cultivation of these postures, I suggest, are primary ways these texts exert influence on those who read them as scripture. First, we should approach poetry imaginatively. We arguably live in a culture that is experiencing the effects of imaginative impoverishment. This loss, already being heavily critiqued across a broad range of fields of study, has a negative impact on our capacities as readers of poetry, as ethical decision makers, and as people of faith. In many ways, openness to poetry's own way of being is one potential redress of this imbalance. By conveying its meaning through images and by resisting didactic simplification, poetry enacts imaginative expansion. Practicing a posture of imaginative openness invites biblical poetry to address us as scripture. In turn, biblical poetry enacts formation through its expansion of our imaginative capacity across repeated encounters. This attitude requires allowing ourselves to enter the world of the text. It means listening with an openness to its images and metaphors as ways of making meaning. It means resisting the urge to translate our encounters with poetic texts into sources of didactic instruction. Second, our approach to poetry should embrace a posture of patient expectancy. Much biblical poetry addresses the hearer directly without the intervening frame of a narrative or discursive structure. This feature produces immediacy and places the hearer into an encounter with the poetic speaker, which inevitably carries an emotional charge. Attentive openness to the poem's voice and its emotional world are crucial to interpreting and receiving the text on its own terms. Poetry demands attention to its own particular concrete expression. Poems offer an encounter which cannot be abstracted into propositions without significant, if not overwhelming, loss. Poetry's strangeness works to draw us out of our human tendency towards self-orientation. When we attempt to bend poetry to our expectation of what it should be, we resist its own concrete speaking and its ability to form us into slower, more attentive listeners. Capacities which expand our openness both to the complex human other and to the real and living God. Our posture towards biblical poetry then is one of surrender of our control over it and of waiting. As Mary Kenzie remarks, quote, it may well put us closer to the truth of art to wait rather than interpret, end quote. Again, the posture poetry demands has formational potential. Biblical poetry acts as scripture, at least in part, by shaping habits of attentive openness to the otherness of God. Third, poetry invokes a posture of vulnerable uncertainty. 
Poetry has the ability to chasten our over-familiarity and our desire for simple certainty. Poetry exploits the tensions in language. As Jane Hirschfeld comments, quote, good poetry helps us be more richly uncertain in more profound ways, end quote. Reading biblical poetry with openness to ambiguity means resisting those aspects of our culture and our religious traditions which exhibit what Malcolm Dyke names as, quote, particular suspicion of the ambivalent or multivalent language of poetry, end quote. This reading posture does not look for complexity and ambiguity where they are not, but does celebrate and embrace them where they occur. It assumes that the poem will make meaning through tensive juxtapositions of words, through language that hides at the same time as it reveals, through images that play with the boundaries between sound and sense, and between multiple layers of meaning. It resists harmonizing and flattening approaches to exegesis. Embrace of ambiguity has the capacity to form such virtues as humility, receptivity, wisdom, and intellectual honesty in the face of that which transcends our human modes of knowing. With those postures in mind, we turn our attention toward the text. In light of encounter, ambiguity, juxtaposition, and emotional tone, I argue that Isaiah 45, 9 to 25, refuses to explain the Lord's ways. Instead, it produces a visionary world where resistance is utterly misguided and where gathering, bowing, and turning overwhelm understanding. The hidden speaker exceeds comprehension speaking the standard by which all else spoken must be measured. The voice flaunts definition and revels in imagistic juxtaposition. In so doing, it has the capacity to undermine our compulsion to define, to designate, to clarify, and to delineate. The poem chastises the attempt to understand as prerequisite for trust. Instead, it invites the embrace of a trust that is grounded in the majesty of one who is beyond the control of our knowledge. The encounter this poem offers enacts a transformation of its hearer. It invites the audience into its imaginative world to inhabit the space the poem's address creates. There, the audience find their contentiousness rendered untenable, their self-aggrandizement misguided, and their grounds for faith reconfigured. They're invited not to comprehension, but to reverent wonder. A first avenue for consideration in this approach to the poem is an emotional clash, which offers one of the poem's powerful modes of meaning-making. Opening indictment stands beside grand promise. The juxtaposition of these two tones dramatically repositions the audience. While the impact of the opening indictment is profoundly humbling, 
the imagery also offers the audience a place of honor among people. Thus, repositioned, the audience are shaped for reapprehension of divine speech. The poem thrusts the audience into a direct encounter with a speaking voice, whose parallel deployments of poi, verses 9 and 10, signal its harsh tone. The parallelism's sound patterning draws attention to the comparison between the speaker and the addressee. It is a comparison that emphasizes the sharp contrast between them. The opening line is ambiguous on several levels. It does not explicitly name those being indicted, characterizing them with descriptive participles. The one to whom Hoy is announced is one who contends with his fashioner. Whoever the addressees are, they are invo invoked by a voice that characterizes them as disputing with the one who brought them into being. There are hints that Jacob Israel are the addressee, particularly in the use of the verb fashioner, yotzro, and in the use of offspring imagery in verse 10. But the poetry avoids naming them as addressee. Instead, associations create an increasingly likely tie between the audience themselves and the indictee. By forcing the audience to come to this recognition themselves, the poetry increases the audience's emotional involvement. It implicates them in the act of assigning indictment, indictment to themselves through recognition. In heavily ironic rhetorical questions, the divine speaker develops a pair of resonances out of the opening line. Neither the unformed materials of the pot nor the unborn child should be justified or able to correct the one who aids them into being. These two imaginative outworkings of fashioner from the opening line stand in an intensifying parallel relationship with each other. First, a pair of rhetorical questions asks the audience to consider the likelihood of earthenware objecting to the process of its own sculpting. The second pair of rhetorical questions shifts, intensifying the singing tone. No longer hypothetical, no longer inanimate, and no longer speculative, the questions are placed on the indictee's lips, and hoi is pronounced over the one who speaks them, verse 10. Reiteration and reapplication disambiguate the sons and work of my hands with pronounced emotional impact as the Holy One of Israel and its fashioner, 4511, is announced as the speaker. The divine voice employs creation motifs to paint its response onto a still broader canvas. It redeploys making from the clay's query to claim the role of Earth's maker, applies the hands imagery to the creation of the heavens, and picks up the language of command to convey its own sovereignty over the stars, verse 12. This is a profoundly humbling encounter, which works emotionally at undermining resistance to divine activity. 
in sharp and unexplained contrast to the chastising invective that begins the poem, the messenger formula announces a re-envisioning of the audience's relationship with other groups of people. They are offered a vision of themselves as those to whom powerful nations give honor and treasures, verse 14. Lavish glorification imagery collides with the humbling trajectory already begun. Those honored among the nations and those whose avoidance of shame and confounding stands at variance with those around them, verse 16, offer different images of the audience. The juxtaposition of humbling before God and exaltation among humans invites the audience into a new imagistic and emotional space. In this world, they can imaginably join the community depicted in the line, for to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear, verse 13. These attitudes and the juxtaposition of emotional images that offer them function to reposition the poem's audience. Opening harsh and sarcastic invective undermines resistance to the divine plan, while contrasting promises of exaltation highlight the audience's privileged position as beneficiaries of that plan. The poem's imaginative world sets the audience into their rightful place. It brings them down from self-exaltation that rejects the mysterious ways of God and simultaneously raises them up in contrast to those peoples that, who do not know the Lord. A second important approach to reading this poem poetically is an embrace of its ambiguity. This is a difficult poem which plays with its words and is dotted with motifs of hiddenness, confusion, and chaos. It has a thick background, which carries the attentive listener outside the poem's boundaries to seek clarification in its resonances with other poems. As the poem forces its audience to grapple with its underdefined and elusive claims, it reinforces the reevaluation of their knowledge in contrast to that of the speaking deity. In this way, its mode of expression embraces and conveys meaning. One of the poem's driving ambiguities is the absence of the impertinent potsherds and its comparison partners' complaint. This elusiveness about the contention itself is part of the poem's imagistic work. It hints that the audience's concerns might cluster around their inability to comprehend the deity's activities. Standing in unexplained parallel to the creator's insistence upon having formed heaven and earth, humans and the heavenly hosts, is the line, I have roused him in righteousness, and all his ways I will straighten, verse 13. The line moves the frame of reference from cosmic creation to historical particularity, but without stating who he is. Divinely initiated recreation becomes a motif of restoration from exile, 
a number of modern English translations, including the NRSV, supply Cyrus's name here, signaling the problem that such ambiguity poses. While it is likely, though not certain, that the poem refers to Cyrus, it does so obliquely, and this is part of the way in which the poem makes meaning. The divine voice does not need to explain itself to the audience, as the poem's opening imagery illustrated. Instead, the line focuses on the divine speaker's activity rather than the identity of the one the Lord will raise up. The ambiguity of this line resists straightforward assimilation. Instead, it points outside of itself through elusive links with other lines and other Isaiah poems. The claim all, kol, his ways, derek hive, I will straighten, I share, gestures toward second Isaiah's opening poem and the tie both to way and to leveling are significant. The pairing of righteousness, Sedek, and straighten, Ayasher, weaves this line's ambiguity into the tapestry of interconnected meanings surrounding the divine voice's claims about itself as speaker. A closely tied pairing appears in the parallelism, I am Adonai, speaker of righteousness, spokesman of straightnesses, verse 19. Both Sedek and Mesharim are at play in the poem and gesture beyond simple associations, complicating and expanding the meaning of truth as a translation for Tzedek here. The noun Mesharim can carry a moral or ethical flavor, as in integrity, but also has resonances with divine resolution of the audience's struggle. The echo here of the pairing of Ayasher with Zedek flavors this declaration with the imagery that announced the Lord's raising up one who would bring out the exiles and build the city in verse 13. The creative enacting divine word resonates with the declaration of deliverance. Carrying these associations, the freighted words convey both that the Lord's word is reliable, trustworthy, and true, and that this word speaks deliverance into being. The creative enacting word accomplishes what the Lord intends by it, and reference to righteousness, which goes out from the divine mouth and will not return, verse 23, resounds with the more expansive iteration of that motif in Isaiah 55. That the divine word is creative and enacting, delivering as well as reliable, is conveyed by the poetic juxtaposition in which it stands. Isaiah 45 19 stands at an intersection between creation and salvation images. The self-declaration, I am Adonai, verse 18, offered a resounding poetic conclusion to the description of the Lord as creator. The bicolon, I am Adonai, speaker of Tzedek, spokesman of straightnesses, stands parallel to it 
and offers itself as the climax of a series of bipolar topicalizing divine speech. Yet it looks forward also. Tzedek, as Rentdorf has noted, seems heavily colored in 2nd Isaiah by its relationship to salvation terminology, and this occurrence is no exception. Survivors of the nations appear in the next verse and are placed in parallelistic juxtaposition with those who pray to a God who cannot save. Much more tellingly, the next declaration of divine uniqueness self-predicates a God of Tzedek and a savior, Moshiach, verse 21. Clearly, Tzedek belongs to the metaphorical domain of divine speech. The voice will go on to proclaim that it went out from my mouth, verse 23. It characterizes the speech of a voice that commands worlds into being and pronounces deliverance. This is truth being spoken, but with expansive meaning and implications. It is a term with which the poem is playing, and one that resists precisely limited definition. At this point, one might be inclined to agree with the voice who interjects, surely you are a God who hides yourself, verse 15. Divine hiddenness in this poem directly intersects one of Second Isaiah's main tensions and illustrates the importance of its emotional unsettling and reorienting work. The line sits as a poetic interjection within its context. Its ambiguity functions on several levels. Most obviously, it engages the mystery of divine hiddenness. In addition, it is not altogether clear who is speaking these words within the poem's world, nor is it evident whether they are to be regarded as complaint, as a misunderstanding, or as a statement of truth. The immediately preceding cola place words on the lips of the nations, verse 14. They take up the second Isaiah motif of the Lord's uniqueness and tie that singularity to the audience's distinctive role. The immediate context, then, seems to express a recognition of the poem's reality. If the nation's voice continues into the line, surely you are a God who hides yourself, it expresses the mystery of divine hiddenness as fitting within the experience of the nations who recognize Israel's distinctive role and the Lord's unique sovereignty. But it is not altogether clear in the poem that the nation's voice speaks this interjection. In 45.14, the nations address a you, but that you is apparently the poem's audience. The expression of divine hiddenness addresses the Lord as you, enacting but not explaining its shift of addressee. The poetic immediacy of this paratactic shift leaves significant ambiguity. The lines that follow do not directly take up the imagery of divine hiddenness, there, confusion and confounding for the nations contrast with everlasting salvation for Israel, verses 16 and 17. In its immediate poetic context, 
Surely you are a God who hides yourself, stands underdetermined. Its ambiguity leaves open the possibility that the nations continue speaking or that another voice interjects. In either case, it is not clear whether this assertion is to be taken as true or as part of the confusion that differentiates Israel's experience from that of the idol worshippers in verses 16 and 17. The ambiguity of this interjection is complicated by its tie to the motif of hiddenness in 2nd Isaiah. On the one hand, the parallelism immediately ascribing the title Savior to this hidden God implies that the poem treats them as true, whoever it is that is speaking them. However, this truth is a complicated one, as Valentine observes here, quote, hiding and saving are joined in asserting a paradox of divine activity, end quote. The word here, mistater, is a participial form of the word in Jacob Israel's cited complaint in Isaiah 40, 27. My way is hidden, misteroth, from the Lord. In a climactic moment within the poetic movement of these chapters, the divine voice takes up language from both Zion's and Jacob Israel's complaints, declaring, for a short moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In a flood of fury I hid his tarti, my face for a moment from you, but with everlasting steadfastness I will have compassion on you, Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. The language of the complaints moves tensively and paradoxically through the poems, including this poem's earlier entanglement with the Lord's intention to level away, 4513, and the resonance between this idea and the preparation of the Lord's way in Isaiah 40. But the hidden imagery of Isaiah 45 relates not to Jacob's or anyone else's way, but to God, and stands as an expression of apparent self-hiding. Here, the divine voice does not immediately take up this language, complicating our sense of the relationship between the interjection, Jacob Israel's complaint, and the divine voice's response. Hiddenness appears again in verse 19 in noun form, where the divine voice relates it to its own speech. This line carries its own ambiguity, offering what might be read less as a refutation of the interjection and more as a complication of the picture of divine hiddenness. Both this line and its parallel begin with low, laying the line's emphasis on what the deity claims not to have done. In secret is itself unclear. Does it indicate where such speaking did not take place, or what the nature of that speaking was not, or is the imagery of the one intended to convey the other? Gradually, these bicolas parallelism enacts their intimation of disambiguation. In secret is accompanied by a parallel emphasizing place. The second bicolon adds an addressee, 
And both secret and darkness are further amplified by the addition of tohu. The image forming is that divine speech shares characteristics with divine creation, calling up resonances with both Genesis 1 and Isaiah 29, the poetry lays claim to divine speech as not hidden, employing imagery that suggests divine speech creates and calls into being and sharply contrasts with human speech and knowledge. Further complication and expansion are added by language shared with Isaiah 45.3, where explicit connection was made to Cyrus. Ambiguity here is not a problem to be solved or, quote, interesting solely because it is a nuisance, end quote. Ambiguity is a way in which the poem means. It invokes and creates the experience of divine hiddenness. The divine voice's ambiguity enacts and expands the human and readerly experience of divine mystery. In the world of the poem, the interjection, surely you are a god who hides yourself, voices the reality of human limitation in ultimately knowing the mind and purposes of God. The poem's ambiguity and its emotional encounter enact a humbling, an embrace of limitation and a rightful reorienting of attitudes and dispositions. The idea of divine mystery is, at least in part, embraced in the series of poems. The Lord is, for Israel, both revealed in the divine, not secret, creative, redemptive, integrity-bearing word, and lofty, beyond containing, reducing, or controlling. Second Isaiah's climactic line embraces the hidden face of God, 54.8, where it is paired with the rejection of the idea of God-forsakenness. But the mysterious transcendence of the God whose word is effective, not hidden, comes through tensive, conflicted, ambiguous poetic speech. Surely you are a God who hides yourself, stands undesignated, and thus remains open to the audience, both the exilic historical audience and the contemporary reader who reads this poem as scripture. It offers an invitation to face our discomfort with divine hiddenness, and to embrace the formative value of a poem that both contests self-exalting resistance to the deity and invites confidence in the utter righteousness of the Lord. As this voice imagistically undertakes an emotional and attitudinal reorientation, it plays with words and complicates their meanings, through multiple overlapping and tensive redeployments. It conveys mystery, abundance of meaning, and elusiveness to grasping reduction. It invites the hearer, both ancient and modern, to find themselves read by a voice which unmasks their pride 
and exposes the brokenness of their language. In conclusion, biblical poetry offers an opportunity to reflect on what we mean when we speak about scripture. Biblical poetry suggests that one way in which we might conceive of our relationship with scripture is that of formational encounter. In the context of distraction, biblical poetry forms habits of attention, habits that may give rise to more healthily ethical encounters with others, habits that form the capacity for attention to God in prayer. In this poem in particular, the emotionally intense encounter with the divine speaker forms attentiveness that maintains God's majesty and resists assimilation into our human designs and preconceptions. When neglect of our imaginative capacity has the potential to undermine our ability to envision appropriately that which is outside of ourselves, biblical poetry confronts the prosaic world with worlds of its own. This poem transforms an imagistic depiction of contentiousness, juxtaposing a lavish, glorious future. It moves the imagination from a setting of resistance to an invitation to worshipful wonder. It pulls its audience out of an attitude shaped primarily by their own perceptions into one that views reality from the perspective of the other. In a time of reductive simplification, biblical poetry insists that the central truths of humanity and the divine are complex. In this poem, that ambiguity invites wrestling with divine speech itself, an encounter that has the capacity to shape us into more receptive, more engaged, more imaginative readers. It forces us to leave some questions open. By engaging biblical Hebrew poetry in these ways, we practice the habits it forms in us. We engage in formational encounters, and we engage with it as scripture. Thank you.